get into our message this morning, we're going to intro with a video that kind of asks the question, are you listening to what Jesus is telling you? Are you willing to go where he tells you to go? It may not be the place that you want to go. It may not be the place that's comfortable to go, but wherever you go, there are people that need to hear the message and the hope of Christ. And this is, this is a, a story of a guy who was actually ministering in one of the least likely places that you would expect to hear the gospel. As we go 
Father Christ. There are unreached people groups all, all over in our world. Uh, there are places like Wycliffe and New Tribes Missions uh, working with these unreached people groups. There, there is, believe it or not, uh, a couple of unreached people groups that have never reached modern man in the Amazon. Uh, there was a issue with some on an island out uh, off the coast of India, Ceylon, Sri Lanka area, uh, just a little while back in the news where a missionary who was headed there was killed. So those are the kind of, kinds of things that they're still going on. People all through the world have not yet been reached. We're making headways in it. We're translating the Bible, the scriptures, the message of the gospel into languages that we never would have even imagined we could have done so 100 years ago, or 50 years ago, or maybe even 20. We have a saturation of the scripture through uh, means that take use of the media. I mean, there, there are applications on smartphones that you can have a phone that this, that's this size that would have many different languages of the Bible available to a person. Where 20 years ago, that's a whole wall shelf in your study, or your living room, or your library, or a whole section in the public library. Those kinds of things that we never imagined 20, 30 years ago are here. So, even though we have a basic grasp of what Jesus is teaching here, that the, his word, his message of hope needs to go into all nations beginning at Jerusalem and going out from there. We're going to look a little bit deeper into a few key statements in this passage. First, during the entire series that we've started at Christmas time of this coming Messiah that has been foretold, here is where Jesus is saying, I'm not Messiah. Again, he's saying that again. Because there are people that they, they may uh, say that Jesus was a good person, but he was not of God. Jesus is a good person, but he's not divine. Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not the promised Messiah. Or they may say he never claimed to be the Messiah, to which you can point to this passage and say, yes, he is that Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. There are several places in the Gospels that you can say that. Here, here's yet another one. So he foretells that he's that redeemer that was foretold in the Old Testament to come and correct and heal and redeem that broken relationship that happened in the garden in Genesis 3. Jesus states in the passage that he is the promised Messiah. You look specifically at verse 44. He uses the phrase, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. What's that mean? Well, we're going to find That is the book of, it's the same as the collection of books of the Bible that we have and we call the Old Testament. Because we have the law, which, or the law of Moses is how the Jews call it, which is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, some of you may have heard of the term Pentateuch before. Penta equals how many? Pentagram, Pentagon, yes. Uh, first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, Carl's commentary gives a good summary of how the Jews at the time of Jesus categorized the Bible as they had it. Uh, because it was collections of scrolls. It wasn't one bound book because it was handwritten and hand copied on scrolls. Here's how they did it. This is the Jewish tradition of the whole Old Covenant, or Old 
I was right. Song of Solomon, up into the 1800s, was called Canticles in English Bibles because Canticles is another name for songs. Uh, some, some were Bibles, I've, I've seen Song of Solomon refer to Song of Songs, which, you know, Canticles would be very close to tie to. So, that's, that's another word for that because in a lot of places you see uh, Psalms, Proverbs, and Song of Solomon That's human nature, that's not 
Gentiles. Um, also, we look at the culture of that time. When we talked about the crucifixion, where we said that Pilate was possibly even fearful of Jesus, there's a reason for that. Because the writings of that time period, you even look back to several hundred years before that, to Homer and the Iliad, you had these stories and these Greek mythologies uh, of that time period in the thousand or so years running up to Christ, where somebody was hidden from them as a god, and they were treated poorly by people. The person is revealed as a god, and what happens to the god? He comes back and takes revenge. That's something that Pilate didn't want to concern himself about because of these mythologies and these writings from before his time. He saw, even if this guy is what they call a demigod, or a half-god, like Hercules from Greek mythology, I don't want to be one that revenge can be taken on me. So this theme was pretty prevalent in that culture, but yet, here in the Gospel, Luke, who's writing to Greeks, who would be very familiar with this theme, he's showing that not only does Christ forgive them, but where's the first place that Christ is wanting the gospel to preach? That hope, that redemption, that forgiveness. Jerusalem, the same place where he was crucified. And these people did these horrible things to him. He came back with forgiveness and redemption. So that's something that's very important and a very offsetting from any other literature of that period that would make people this Greek original readers sit up and say, hey, there's something different about Christianity. And that's important because we're going to hit that in a little bit. Jesus gives them the great commission to preach the gospel of grace in verses 47 and 48. And he reminds them that the witnesses of these things. What are these things? Well, as we read through the read through the scriptures, there are witnesses that he came and was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. That he healed the sick, healed the blind, healed the lame. That he lived a perfect life and was crucified by the Jews and rose again on the third day and walked among people for 40 days. That's what they were witnesses of. So, Barnes makes this clear statement that the commission is not only to the disciples, but to all believers. He says, you're witnesses of these things, of my life, my sufferings, my death, and my resurrection. How solemn was their office to testify these things to the world, and in the face of suffering and death, go and proclaim them to all nations. In like manner, all Christians are witnesses for Christ. They are the evidences of His mercy and love, and they should live so that others may be brought to see and to love the Savior. So before we shift into what this means for us today, from this scripture, we need to look at one thing in verse 49 that is said that we need to pay attention to because it's going to take us into next week. Uh, it says, verse 49, they're told to go to the city and wait for the promise of the Father. What's that? Any guesses? Holy Spirit, yeah. So go and wait for the Holy Spirit. It's been promised. So that, we know that uh, F.P. Cole explains that the Holy Spirit was the final piece that the disciples needed to carry forward the command that Jesus laid out. He says, the coming gift of the Holy Spirit as the, as the power of all that is contemplated. The scriptures had been opened up, their understandings had been opened up too, and the new commission of grace had been clearly given. But they must wait until they possess the power in which alone. 
we may so put it, put if we may so put it like a well laid fire waiting for the match to be struck, which will produce a cheerful voice. He opens the sequel of Acts by showing us how the coming of the Spirit struck the match and lit the fire with wonderful results. So Jesus not only opened their minds to the Spirit, gave them a command, but then didn't say go do it right away. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit, because you can't do this on your own. You can't do this under the power of your own flesh. But the Holy Spirit's coming to give you the power that you need to be bold to do this. So, that's, they had everything they needed but that power from the Holy Spirit, which was going to teach them, eliminate them, as Martin Luther put it, and, and give them boldness to go places with the gospel that they would never even think to go. Um, honestly, uh, the video that we watched, I don't feel that I would have the call to go into a bar and share the gospel. I feel that probably many of us may not have that same call. However, we can praise God that He has called people to reach people in places that we would never imagine. And I'm okay that God's using this man in Fort Worth to spread the gospel in ways that we would never imagine to reach people that would never darken the doors of church. Because, like he said, there's no gospel-free zone. This is what the disciples, this is what they were ordered. So, next week we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit does when he shows up. And yes, we're going to be technically out of the gospels, we'll be in Acts 1 and 2, but it's a continuation of that last piece of Jesus' ministry and the ascension and the, whole, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So before we turn, close our time of looking at the scriptures, we're going to look at what this means for us. Because here we are in the Midwest 2,000 years later. You know, this is, this is neat history, this is neat culture, but what's it mean to us today? Well, we have the same instruction, the same message that his disciples were given 2,000 years ago. And we have the same orders to share. Because they were told to tell others that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he brings forgiveness and redemption. What are we told to do? Jesus is the promised Messiah. He brings forgiveness and redemption. Same message. They were told he was to tell others that he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, crucified, dead, buried, and raised on the third day. That's the same message that we are to give in our communities as well. Because 2,000 years later, Jesus didn't change what he did 2,000 years ago. So our message did not change. The methods that we provide it, the context that we give it in, yes, it does change. But our overall message of the gospel of redemption does not change. We're to be witnesses. Were we there when Jesus was crucified? No. But there are things that we are witnesses to. We can be witnesses of the fact that a relationship with Christ changes your life, changes your wants, changes how you do things, changes your values, changes how you treat people, changes how you involve yourself in the community. And we can do that. We, we can be witnesses and show others this is what a relationship with Christ does to your life and your community. To the point where 
People want to know what makes us different. People want to know why is it that being part of a church is so important? Why is it that having a relationship with Jesus is so important? Why is it that knowing what's going to happen to you in eternity is so important? It's called, there, there was a phrase that was uh, coined during the 80s and early 90s called contagious Christianity. I think it's a very valid way to put this. Because it's not only you're telling other people, but you're living it to the point that they're asking even before you're able to tell it in some cases. So that's that's what we're called to do. We're called to be that contagious Christian. As followers of Christ, we have the same Holy Spirit living in us that we're going to see the disciples got next week. We have that same Holy Spirit. As I said before, the message is power from the Holy Spirit. You know the word that Luke uses for power from the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? Dunamis. It's the same root word that we get dynamite from. Same Greek root. So that's the kind of power that Luke is saying that the Holy Spirit has. And a lot of times, we live as if we've got that dynamite power stuffed back in the closet and we want to do it our way. And it doesn't always work the way that we think it should work out because we've not allowed the Holy Spirit to do what He does. So, the Spirit guides us, teaches us, gives us boldness, and He's not to be ignored. He's, as we had in our response reading this morning, the Holy Spirit's part of the Trinity, just like the Father and the Son. It's not like 1, 2, 2A. Or capital A, capital B, or AC. No, they are all co-equal parts of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is important. But, He's also the most ignored part of the Trinity in many of our churches. Some churches can place an emphasis on it, or an overemphasis on it, and maybe get things wrong that direction too. There has to be a balance here. And we're going to look at that next week in our, in our message. So, next week we'll be looking at Acts 1 and 2, the ascension of Jesus and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a little different than what you may think. Uh, being a Baptist uh, background preaching in a Quaker church, you may, you may see something a little different with the Holy Spirit. But, what I'm going to strive to do is look at what does Scripture say? What does, what does the Scripture and the culture and the language tell us about what happened with the disciples and what we're called to do? So as we close our time in the Word, we're going to have our time of communion through the Quaker tradition and quiet worship. And I'm going to remind you, and I know that everybody in here knows this, that this is a time that the Spirit can manifest in our ministry.